0: Perhaps a great measure of how agile a business is, is not in achieving its digital transformation goal, but how agile it is when an opportunity comes out of nowhere, right? That's that's an interesting, ambitious threshold. So what happened during COVID is that Singapore was trying to suppress the rapid spread of the virus in the early days of COVID. And Singapore has a tremendously large population of uh, foreign migrant workers, right? So they're an incredible asset to the country, but how did we protect them from the rapid spread? Of COVID, these you know foreign workers were unable to go to you know those offices that allowed them to repatriate their incomes, right? Because they're all going a forced lockdown. P B S because of its agility, was able to work with different government bodies to give every single foreign worker a bank account digitally that allowed them to have a digital bank account digitally created, digitally used, and allowing them from their home to be able to send money back home. And that was done, like, in banking terms in the blink of an eye, you know, over a weekend. Imagine setting up, you know, several hundred thousand bank accounts digitally
1: you're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode, and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. All right, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today my guest is David Isaac Matthews. David is a corporate strategist with 18 years experience in cross-functional digital product and marketing. He's developed the first principles supported C-suites to deliver more reliable growth for the What's Next strategic business initiatives. So David, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, everybody. Hi, Paris.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do?
0: Sure. I started out in strategy in a brand consulting business that was acquired by Landor. We were a strategic brand outfit. So, you know, months of segmentation and research before a product was devised or designed for a segment. So, that was very strategic work. Fell into entrepreneurship, grew a little, little business, 500%. That was my first little traditional business exit. Went straight into innovation and startups ever since. I've been helping in monetization at Samsung. I led um, sort of digital innovation at EY ASEAN, the EY Parthenon Management Consulting Team. We did commercial due diligence and acquisitions for traditional businesses acquiring innovation in 2016, 2017, 2018. Very very mm-hmm. foundational stuff in Southeast Asia. Yeah. That was very exciting. And they're really defining what digital transformation was for incumbent businesses. At GrowthOps, what we did was helping companies build launch. grow and now doing some very exciting stuff with corporate venture building, digital transformation for banks, launching their new apps. So the gamut actually of working from large funded startups to corporate ventures and consulting.
1: That's great. Now, I'm hearing a theme here as you talk about your experience of corporate. You've worked in a lot of large corporations and trying to bring digital transformation and innovation to large corporations. I can imagine that could be, I mean, these are not always the most agile, fastest moving organizations. I want to understand when you try to tackle a project like digital transformation, how do you approach that? I mean, how do you get a large organization to think more innovatively? Well, usually I'm
0: not coming in and you know telling people what to do. The overall theme of my entire career has been a CEO with a vision. We used to call it special projects or a new business launching team. Then one day it became internal corporate innovation and entrepreneurship and corporate venture building. So we've always been doing the same thing. And I come in at the point when there's usually a threshold There's about to be funding and everybody's looking at validation and hands-on validation and launching all in one. So I'm pretty much an operator with that strategy point of view because I'm I'm a product person. I just happen to have a bit of experience doing the go-to-market as well and sort of bringing that, steering that ship. But really what is key to success is really validating, right? What the first principles are, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to acquire entirely new users in a different segment? Is it a different path to monetization? Are we trying to do asset-like business model innovation? Are we trying to use the gravity of the existing business to, you know, to monetize in a new way existing customers already acquired? Or are there new opportunities that you want want to pursue that the parent company can't do without a hands off approach. Something that's a bit risky or future proofing or sometimes a potential threat to the parent brand. So, you know, those are often times when, you know, corporate venture capital is applied and acquisition is done or, you know, acqui-hire or sometimes a internal team is is sort of set up without that equity and they have to take the risk and, you know, guarantee success. So sometimes it can be challenging.
1: Yeah. You mentioned something interesting there, which I didn't quite understand. Asset light monetization. Did I get that right? Sure, I mean- What does that
0: mean? One of my favorite elements of business model transformation is the ability to create a business that is so different from a traditional asset heavy business. So for example, Airbnb is the quintessential case, right? It's almost like a cliche to talk about them, right? They're a hospitality business with no homes. Uber was the first poster child, right? A transportation company without the vehicle assets. I did a business that was supply chain disruption without necessarily having the physical ownership of the raw material. It was amazing, game changing, and you know disintermediated like four or five levels of distributors in a raw material supply chain in an entire country, and just releasing fifteen percent of margin in an industry that, in a good five or six year cycle, had like three percent margins. So this asset light way of going to market and re envisioning a business gives you a lot of capex that you can. Deploy onto different types of fixed assets but a smaller amount or you know invest heavily into growth or market
1: acquisition uh, you know customer
0: acquisition or, or market entry new geographic entry it releases a lot of constraints
1: yeah, yeah, that makes makes sense. And you also mentioned that a lot of these big projects are connected to some sort of venture capital or private equity event. It could be a merger, acquisition, or some kind of large fundraising. Why is it that the investors, the future investors, care so much about getting that organizational, getting that organization digitally transformed as part of its either a merger or an acquisition? Why is that a key ingredient for so many investors?
0: It, it can be. So I never talk about the top 20 percent of a uh, industry vertical, the same as 80% below it. So there's always a 20% that's already sort of very digitally native, very digitally advanced, you know, design is their way of life already, they're very customer-centric, and they've already taken steps over several years to already be very innovative, very agile. We call it digital, which is, you know, such a blurry kind of concept. But the remaining 80% of the industry, what you're looking at is in Southeast Asia, Greater Asia, we're seeing a lot of appetite for growth, right? That's not a surprise. You know, there is is what we call a lot of available capital for investment to cement on that growth based on the incredibly huge population that is you know, within three to seven hours of a plane ride, right? And your digital app knows no plane rides, right? So they can access that market. The challenge with that is that, you know, there's a huge difference in cultures across just Southeast Asia and Asia. There are so many countries, so many languages within those languages. There are so many dialects, so many different levels of earning power and digital maturity. However, you know, Southeast Asia is growing incredibly rapidly. Indonesia is putting together an entirely new capital and Indonesia's got 70% of the population of the whole of Southeast Asia. I mean, 280 million people is not a small number. Venture capital and this kind of investment is a great way to leapfrog and get into a market to serve an audience in a different way, bring a different kind of value. Sometimes it is, you know, around the gravity of a parent of a legacy business. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's white space. Sometimes it's an adjacent business. Sometimes it's that cross-sell and upsell that we learned about in in business school. So yeah, it's about leapfrogging, I think.
1: Yeah. What are some of the actual factors that you would look at to assess, let's say, the the digital health or the digital maturity, let's call it, of of an organization that might be going through this process of transformation? What are the key factors that you look at to determine that this is a mature or, or an immature company in terms of digital and digital marketing? that's a big question
0: let's assume that there is already a new digital product there and we want to assess the digital health right the amount of product analytics that's available so can the c-suite in real time monitor retention health monitor monetization health can they do that per segment especially in a multi-product business right there you know different products have different lifetime value they've got different levels of profitability they've got different costs of acquisition of customer if you're there I'd say you're very digitally native you know if I'm grading on a curve, I think you're already in a very good position to be able to be agile, to be able to innovate, to be able to know whether to, you know, to kill, to pivot, to reinvest, spin off. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that level of product analytics, you know, I mean, this is the era of the buzzword product led growth. What does that mm-hmm. mean, right? Where um, you're sort of acquiring, onboarding customers at scale with a product with minimal human intervention. The human intervention is only there to really cement the higher value customers maybe. We're talking about already new terms like product-led sales. What does sales do in a product-led growth world? What do we do with our sales teams and how do we apply them to the segments that we want to monetize? Perhaps that the product won't monetize on its own. Like why apply the sales team to the segment that is going to happily onboard on its own, right? So we have to target sales to that next best impact to the business. I think those are all exciting parts of potential if you're monitoring digital health. We've got digital Health indexes and quizzes that we apply at a per person or a per organization level. So I think many consultancies have that. Uh, I use one that is benchmarked against what we call the world's best bank, DBS, which has won by now more than four world's best bank accolades from Euro Money and different awards programs like that. I work with. Um,
1: which bank? I didn't catch that. Which bank are you it's referring to? DBS. DBS. DBS, sorry. yeah. It used to be called Development
0: Bank of Singapore. And uh, there's a book out called The World's Best Bank, uh, which, you know, at one point I helped launch this book written by somebody who worked with the global chairman of the bank, Piyush Gupta, who's been acclaimed for his work on turning a bank into the most digital business around, you know, benchmarking digital native businesses and seeing what the future lies, you know, what the future holds and how to use that to develop the roadmap for the digital transformation of a bank. And They are in their third wave of digital transformation. In business model theory, you talk about having a mission that never changes and then a vision that you achieve every three years. I mean, this is a business that is a, a textbook. It's actually a Harvard business case study as well on having achieved its vision several times already and having had to renew a more... and and put into place a more ambitious vision. More ambitious, yeah. Yeah, so it's very interesting. At one point, they were talking about being the world's, you know, making banking joyful, and that's that's already game-changing, and they feel that they've achieved that, and they're onto the next level now of their transformation.
1: Can you give me one or two examples of what DBS does that makes it so digitally fast-forward and such a great model for other banks? I imagine the app must be great, but what else do they do that really makes them stand out?
0: I think there are a couple of heartwarming examples there. Perhaps a great measure of how agile a business is, is not in achieving its digital transformation goal, but how agile it is when an opportunity comes out of nowhere, right? That's that's an interesting, ambitious threshold. So what happened during COVID is that Singapore was trying to suppress the rapid spread of the virus in the early days of COVID. And Singapore has a tremendously large population of uh, foreign migrant workers, right? So they're an incredible asset to the country, but hard we protect them from the rapid spread of COVID. Basically, the whole country was in various types and levels of lockdown. But these, you know, foreign workers were unable to go to, you know, those offices that allowed them to repatriate their incomes, right? Because they're all on a forced lockdown. BBS because of its agility was able to work with different government bodies to give every single foreign worker a bank account digitally without the need to go to a branch over one weekend in what was essentially a hackathon within the bank that allowed them to have a digital bank account digitally created, digitally used, and allowing them from their home to be able to send money back home. And that was done, like, in banking terms in the blink of an eye. You know, over a weekend, imagine setting up, you know, several hundred thousand bank accounts digitally.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. That's, it's a great strategy for them, too, because I think now they, they've just onboarded a few hundred thousand new customers probably in one weekend, right?
0: Like I said, yeah, agility, perhaps an interesting measure is how quickly can you take advantage of opportunity, not just achieving your, your roadmaps. Mm-hmm. Right, it's about can I do something, and in this case, you know, uh, at a national level, that's you know, that's that's a fantastic contribution to the stability of a country and you know the livelihoods of these people and their families back home.
1: Yeah. I think that being opportunistic is also just a great attribute in general with digital and digital marketing. And I often tell people that finance departments, especially in large organizations, sometimes they inhibit growth by having too much overplanning of budget with especially performance marketing. Let's take a paid search, for example. You don't really know how well it's going to work until you start it. And if it works well and the unit economics are very profitable, then the natural next step is to invest, to reinvest more into it. And a lot of times either cfos or finance departments have capped budgets for a quarter or for a year and they they don't allow they're not opportunistic enough and and i think that that's a theme that i see a lot with companies is to really take advantage of These opportunities that you have, especially with paid search marketing, you have to go in and maybe with a small budget, but not with a capped budget and allow yourself to be in a position to take advantage of an opportunity that you might not realize when it comes. And that's, that's another example. I think that's part of digital transformation too.
0: I understand you. I, I feel that. And that that's just at the tactical level. I think where I try to provide some value is in the digital visioning at the C-suite level. Does mm-hmm. marketing only, you know, get rewarded? Does their budget only get increased based on acquisition targets and their value there? Because marketing was seeing a big schism into three types of chief marketing officer. It's no longer one type of chief marketing officer persona. They're the people who are responsible for p and the <laughs> there are the CMOs who are responsible for creating new revenue and finding new revenue and being responsible for that new revenue and not just being an acquisition engine because acquisition is no guarantee of monetization, right? Retention is a big factor there. There are, you know, that's the kind of CMO that I love to help because they're trying to find product market fit. They're validating multiple ideas and hopefully I get them to the point where marketing is helping create value experience in the product. So marketing, is augmenting customer experience and not just being an engine at the top of the funnel. So in the middle of the funnel, enhancing retention, enhancing customer experience, removing frictions, helping customers discover value. I think that is what the second archetype of the new CMO, where he's really, you know, on the line for driving growth. And that's not just about acquisition, that's about overall customer experience. I often joke that marketing is going to subsume customer experience, or customer experience is going to subsume marketing. And then one of those is going to be subsumed into the revenue, right? So it's either going to be a chief revenue officer or a chief marketing officer or a chief customer experience officer. It doesn't matter the title, the role and responsibility is really the first principle that we have to explore. Are you a company that's trying to sell an extra 10 million bottles of Coke a month? Okay, then you need one type of CMO. You need one type of chief revenue officer. If you're a company that wants to create new revenue models, then you need a very different type of CMO.
1: Yeah. I think p- part of this transition as well, or the blurring of the lines between marketing, sales, customer experience, is the enhanced ability to measure a customer's lifetime value from from their entire customer journey, from their first marketing touchpoint to the point of acquisition, then to the to the to the first payment, and then all subs- subsequent payments and lifetime value. And and marketing can and should be judged on its ability to create value, as opposed to just onboarding new customers, or even just getting leads and passing leads to sales. And I think that's a big. Shift as well, I mean, a lot of our a lot of our work is connecting CRM platforms like Salesforce and HubSpot and others to marketing platforms, so that those marketing platforms, at the top of that list is Google Ads, can ingest the revenue data from the leads that they create in the marketing campaigns, so that they can start to aim it their AI bidding on maximization of revenue and value creation, as opposed to simply just a cost-based cost per lead approach of just trying to get as many leads within the certain budget. And that makes a marketing team, and that's probably all also a little bit narrow example of what you've just said, but that makes a marketing, if that is set up properly and the measurement is there, then marketing is responsible for for revenue creation, not just simply lead generation.
0: It's a nice point, Paris. I'll tell you why, because it, it really circles back to what we were talking about. Who restricts the budget? for marketing. And you are using the example of performance marketing and acquisition. At the corporate level, what you've described is a great example of why we need cross-functional collaboration at the C-suite. That is a great point where the CMO and the CFO can get together and create a shared vision of what steps, you know, at what points, at what thresholds would it be in the business's interest not to restrict the marketing budget, right? If they can co-develop a rubber band sort of model, right? That marketing grows if it's ROI positive. I mean, that is a great innovation alignment there. And that's what we work to do. We work to de-silo the C-suite, you know, and somebody's got to represent the voice of the customer at the C-suite. And it can be marketing because they're great at really orchestrating everything that tech does, that product does, that sales does. But they have to be empowered and be in a cross-functional relationship with finance so that there is that incentive alignment, because if everybody's got different roadmaps, it's very hard to decilo that team. And this is perhaps more of a large organization challenge than it is at a very small, maybe, you know, 20, 50, 100 persons data. But it is, a, it is a thing that we need to do to decilo the C-suite.
1: Do you think in general that C-suite members in large companies don't really talk to each other much, especially now in the age of remote and hybrid working, are they just not communicating enough? So I wouldn't
0: use the word they're not talking, I wouldn't say they're not communicating, but on a day-to-day basis, on a dashboard level, on a real-time reporting level, everybody wants data-driven decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. Has that been enabled? Do they have dashboards that they share? Are they referring to customer-centric data? Are they looking at the customer journey? Are they looking at retention together? Are they understanding the difference between leading indicators and lagging indicators together? Are they talking about how marketing and products can influence leading indicators together? Can finance and legal remove obstacles Instructions to product and marketing from affecting those leading indicators. That's what you aim for. I'm sure they're all friendly and they're all talking. Do they not talk? But how do we get them sitting together and working together on a daily basis? You need a little bit more real time. You know, it's it's not sharing a report from a consultancy. You know, oh, this is the latest report from a consultancy. These are mega trends. That's not data driven. That's not data led. Right? That's data informed, and that's not really functioning at the speed of agile because it's not responding to your customer and that's that's what you need to do and honestly even in a hundred person startup you do start to see silos forming there are great examples of startups where product and marketing sit down together on a daily basis but there are many more customer uh, companies that you know that happens on a weekly basis every two weeks every month and that means that innovation flows that means customer centricity Slows, that means real time data about customer preference and the customer journey and the customer experience become siloed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot, online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. Well, David, I'd like to pivot to something that we often do here, if you're up for it, and this is a rapid fire questions. Wow. Okay. That's true. Are, you, are you game for that? Let's, let's try Let's okay. try All right. So question number one is from the marketing channels that you're currently using or overseeing as part of your marketing, pick three, one to kiss, one to marry and one to kill.
0: Wow. Okay. To marry, I'd like organic referral. Okay. To kiss, I'd like to use SEO. Okay. And to kill performance marketing for unvalidated segments.
1: (laughs) All right. I like that. (laughs) Performance marketing for unvalidated segments. Great. Next question is, this is going to be interesting for you, but if you had to change your name, what would your new name be and why would you choose that name?
0: Wow. Um, I've got three first names, David, Isaac, and Matthews. Right. Everybody spells Isaac wrong. Everybody spells, well, not everybody. Lots of people spell Isaac wrong. Lots of people spell Matthews wrong. So I guess I'd change to, um, you know, a name that would be harder to get spelled wrong because it's a very awkward thing to say, hey, you know, Isaac has two A's and Matthews has one T, but uh, it's not something that's important to me. Do you know what? Something I tell my startups a lot is not to get hung up on this name for your startup and... Going into this big branding and naming process, I'm like, let's just focus on the value propositions, not the name. So maybe that makes sense, too. Overrated. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there as well. I'll never forget my first reaction to the name Google in you know the two thousands, and I was in university, and you know we were using the generations of if we can call it search before Google. I'll never forget my first reaction, and look at it now, right? It's uh, yeah. it's everywhere, so you know doesn't matter the name as much, guys. I,
1: I also remember I was in university too when I first saw the, the Google search engine, and I thought it's like it just a very silly, a silly name. But now it's just become so second nature, household. Yeah, let, let's Google that, right? Yeah. So, All right, the next question I have for you, David, is what project gave you the most trouble but ultimately gave you the biggest rewards?
0: You know, um, if I can reframe that, I don't think, I think the projects that gave me the biggest rewards didn't actually give us the most trouble, you know? We really helped revise the scope that the client gave uh, back to first principles. We really helped them understand what they really wanted to do instead of what they thought that they wanted to do. You know, we removed vanity metrics. We worked on, you know, a very rigorous first principles basis. Like, we really audit what the biggest value to the business was. We moved away from marketing fluff to, you know, really focusing on monetary impact and monetization and then letting that guide the project. Um, You know, for some projects, we've been been named, you know, the best vendor we've ever worked with by the president or, um, you know, being like helping refine the vision of the company or the product vision of the company with that approach and that's that's always very exciting. So, you know, if you look at it based on retention, I think really helping people refine their vision and create an actionable roadmap to get to what they really want. It's jobs to be done for my client, really figuring out the jobs to be done for my client and helping them under, understand the underlying outcome that they want. If I've started my project's that way you know they're singing and happy and they ask us to come back and that's what's happening now for some banks uh, far outside southeast asia actually
1: great okay the next question i have David, is uh, what is the biggest either long-term or short-term threat that you see in marketing today that's right i think that i think i've mentioned two of those threats right i think it is
0: the evolving role of the CMO, right? The need for them to wear the three hats of a brand CMO or a PNL CMO or an innovation CMO. Not everybody can wear all three hats. In fact I think hardly anybody has seventeen years of experience in handling All three of those hats. So, we really have to understand the growth stage of the company to choose the right skill set for that CMO. I think that's the first thing. And I think the challenge of brand led CMOs in a world of product led growth, I think we really have to understand the different needs of a company in a product led world. It's not brand is bad or brand is good. I started in strategic branding. I think it is having a balanced understanding of brand marketing versus product marketing versus, you know, lead generation and understanding how to wield all three parts of that in marketing, because I think that's the greatest threat to, you know, that can undermine the value of of marketing, you know, giving the wrong task to the wrong person, enabling them in the wrong way, giving them the wrong incentives, the wrong budget at the wrong time, and making them an island and having to achieve growth by themselves. Growth is a cross-functional sport. It's a team sport, requires all the parts of the organization together. needs product, it needs legal, it needs finance. It needs marketing and it needs to all come together based on customer experience.
1: Great. Next question for you, David. What is the most useless talent that you have? I was going to say
0: whistling, but that's amazing for uh, entertaining my four year old girl. Um,
1: can you whistle? Um, can you do it really loud with a, like hailing a taxi? I can do that
0: without my fingers as well. And I whistle in a, wow. in a really weird Amazing. way. But um, is that a useless skill? I think, yeah, let's, let's do that. It's, uh, it's not money making, but at least it makes us smile, right? Oh, yeah. I've always wanted to be
1: able to whistle like that. I'm very jealous now.
0: You need to get onto the streets of New York where they do it best, right?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, David, if you, had, if you could change or redo anything about your, your general marketing approach, what would it be? I would I would have
0: spent the last five years
1: going into product
0: analytics and having real time marketing and technology suites purpose built and ready for today instead of starting building them today.
1: <laughs> gotcha.
0: <laughs> the okay. best time to start your, your, your search engine marketing in your data analytics was five years ago, right? So Oh
1: yeah. All right, this is the last question, David, I promise. You're relentless. In the in the rapid fire, I mean, sort of rapid fire. Who do you have weekly one-on-one meetings with and what do you talk about in those meetings? I have now the most regular meetings, one-on-ones with
0: several deep technology startups. So these are teams that uh, creating fundamental underlying technology, and we build a business around this patent. So some okay. incredible stuff now, like modular robotics navigation that is crowd-aware and can handle the transparency of glass in urban environments, and wireless, electrical conductivity, uh, you know, separating batteries from the devices, the wearable devices that they're powering. I'm spending a lot of time in that deep technology ecosystem, as well as some B2B SaaS startups, and it's just so energizing, aside from the day job of working in innovation, it's uh, very energizing.
1: Great. Well, David, was there anything that I did not ask you that you wished I would have asked you or that you think could benefit our audience? I think I would
0: just add that, you know, uh, today is the age of real-time statistically validating product market fit. It's the era of, of real-time marketing and real-time product strategy and, and analytics. And if you'd like to chat about that and grow the next Asian unicorns, I'd love to chat with you about that and help you access some really cool funding and help you access some really cool product teams and uh, get you to the next level. That's great. David, where can people find you online? Grab me on LinkedIn, David Isaac Matthews, uh, at I-S-A-A-C-M-A-T-H-E-W-S. And uh, we can chat from there.
1: Isaac with two A's and Matthews with one T. Don't forget. Thank you very much, Paris. Yeah, I was was searching and it it does help very much to have all three of your names on LinkedIn. It makes you very easy to spot and identify because there's a lot of David Matthews and there's a lot of David Isaacs as well. (laughs) But all three is a, is your unique identifier. I'm told that David Isaac Singapore
0: uh, ranks well on Google, so at okay. the very
1: least. Great. Well, it's been a lot of fun, David, and I, I hope to have you back, and I wish you all the best in your journey ahead. Thanks, Paris. Let's stay in touch. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop.hop.online. Have a great day.